From fighting racist policies in federal court to risking her life investigating lynchings in the South and raising her five siblings on her own when she was only 16, there's really nothing that Ida B. Wells couldn't do. Hello, and welcome to The Zed Files. My name is Nina, and I'm here to talk about history. Not all history, just the history I want. And today, I want to talk about Ida B. Wells. No cap, Ida B. Wells is one of the most impressive people I've ever researched. She really has an incredible list of accomplishments that deserve to be recognized. And genuinely, I'm, I'm really sad that she's not more famous than she is, but... You know, I can't say I'm surprised because history hates to recognize the accomplishments of black women. Ida B. Wells was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi on July 16, 1862, which, if you know your American history, is right in the middle of the Civil War. Unshockingly, Wells was born into slavery, although she was freed very soon after her birth because of the Emancipation Proclamation, which went into effect in January of 1963. Interestingly, Holly Springs, Mississippi, Wells' birthplace, was contested territory during the Civil War, meaning that she spent her early childhood in the throes of the famous American conflict. Ida was the oldest of seven children, to parents James and Lizzie Wells, and following their emancipation, both James and Lizzie were active community members and activists. Following the Civil War, they were active in the Republican Party during Reconstruction, and her father was involved with the Freedmen's Aid Society and helped in the creation of Shaw University, now known as Rust College, which was at the time a school for newly freed people. James Wells served on the Board of Trustees, and Ida B. Wells would go on to receive early schooling from Rust College as a result, but was eventually expelled after starting a fight with the university president. But at age 16, tragedy struck her family in the form of a yellow fever epidemic. The year was 1878, and Ida was away on a visit to her grandmother, only to return home to a community devastated by yellow fever. The disease would go on to kill both her parents and her infant brother, leaving Ida to care for her five remaining siblings. When friends of the Wells family made plans to separate the children in order to find each of them guardians, Ida B. Wells objected. She did not want to separate or be separated from any of her siblings, so at the ripe age of 16, she got a job teaching at a rural country school, a job she got by convincing them that she was 18. But she was successful and took on the primary caregiving role for her five young siblings. Clearly, she had quite a few responsibilities at a very young age, but she was always able to rise to them. In 1882, Ida and her five siblings moved in with their aunt in Memphis, Tennessee, where Ida began attending university classes at Fisk University, while continuing to work as an educator, commuting to work every day, on the relatively new public transit, which is exactly what Ida was doing in May of 1884. Ida, now 21, and on her normal commute to work, a train she'd ridden many times over, she went about her morning as if it was completely normal. However, it was not meant to be. But she did what she always did. She bought herself a train ticket to the, quote, ladies' car, Typically, the ladies' car was reserved for women. It was usually non-smoking, maybe a little bit nicer, but not by much. As she went in to take her seat that May, she was told by the train conductor that she couldn't sit there. Despite being a woman, and having bought a ticket, like always. So, she stood her ground, insisting that she could sit there, 
while the instructor was telling her that she needed to go to the black-only car. But Wells was not planning on getting out of that car willingly, so when he began to physically try and remove her from the car, she fought back viciously and bit him, writing later that she, quote, fastened her teeth onto the back of his hand. In response, they cast her out of the train and sent her home in a wagon. But in true Ida B. Wells fashion, she was not going down without a fight. For the moment she got home, she sued those motherfuckers. Ida's court case would go on for a few years, as most court cases seem to do, and although she won in the lower courts and was ordered by the judge to be paid $500, which was quite a bit of money back in 1884, this decision was overturned in the federal state Supreme Court, and so she ended up walking away with nothing. This eventual decision was likely because Tennessee was in the process of segregation at this time. Although she didn't win the lawsuit, this dispute with the railroad held real significance in Ida's life for other reasons. It becomes one of her first experiments with writing and journalism. Now, we haven't gotten into Wells' journalism yet, but trust me, that's coming. But this train event marks the beginning of Ida's life not only as a writer, but as an activist who uses her writing to raise awareness for the injustices in the American South. This all started because she began to both document her experiences, but also write about a whole variety of topics, all under the pen name Iola. Her goal was to write in a way that was accessible to the common people, and she was successful. She was even nicknamed Iola Princess of the Press. Her work was being published in many black newspapers and periodicals. Naturally, at the time, black female writers were not super common, but even amongst the ones that did exist, she was managing to differentiate herself, simply because of the sheer variety of topics she would cover. She was on the path to becoming one of the most prominent female journalists in Tennessee. But because of what she wrote, which had on occasion criticized the very school system that she was a part of, for failing black children and lacking to provide them with good materials, educators, etc. She ended up being fired from her teaching job. So, at the age of 25, she turned to journalism full-time and became the co-owner of The Free Speech and Headlight, a local black newspaper, and continued to use her platform to discuss and raise awareness about racial inequality. Okay, let's step back for a second and talk about the risks she was taking in writing the things she was writing at a time when violence towards people of color was a very common occurrence in the South and very often went completely unchecked. Ida was risking her life to write these things. Angering the Southern whites, her research and investigations would likely have put her in difficult and potentially life-threatening circumstances. And yet, she never let this hold her back. Her bravery and courage is evident in every article she wrote. And yet, this courage is no better demonstrated than in her investigation into the lynchings of three black men, one of whom was a good friend of hers, Tom Moose, Calvin McDowell, and Will Stewart. Before I get into the night these men were lynched and Ida's subsequent investigation, I would like to give a brief history and explanation of lynching in the South. And I would like to say that it is not because I think you don't know what lynching is, rather because I don't want to gloss over or romanticize this story in any way. And if all I do is say the men were lynched, even if you know what that means, I'm worried that the severity of that will go over people's heads. And the gravity of this situation, the risks Ida took, would not be properly understood, which I feel like would be doing a disservice to Ida. 
So, lynching largely began in the South as Southern white people's response to the Emancipation Proclamation. To put it simply, lynching is to kill someone for an alleged crime without a legal trial. But this simply does not do justice to the epidemic that the lynching of black people, more specifically, black men, became in the South. White people used lynching as a way to control and establish dominance over the newly freed black population. It was a way for white people to hold on to power. A common justification for lynching at the time was the protection of white women, but most of the claims made against the lynch victims were mostly baseless and often entirely fabricated. Other times, like in the case of Ida B. Wells' friend, black people could simply be too successful. Lynching was often carried out by mobs of white men, but let's be clear, white women are not blameless. They would accuse black men of rape or violence, and it was their words that would be taken as truth. No investigation needed. White families would take their children to watch the public lynchings, and they would bring picnic baskets, like they were going to Shakespeare in the park. The mobs would torture and then kill and then dismember their victims, and the crowds would take home bones as souvenirs. And then the media would go on to paint the lynched men as rapists and murderers. Lynching was seen as a noble act, and the men who committed these violent atrocities walked free, without fear of prosecution. From 1882 to 1968, there were at least 4,743 lynchings in the United States but it's known that there were many lynchings that went unrecorded. And of the recorded lynchings, 3,446 were black, accounting for 72.7% of the lynched people. And of the white people who were lynched, about 1,297, most were lynched for helping black people or being anti-lynching. There were only a few American states that have no recorded lynchings, but in general, lynching was largely and primarily a southern problem, with Mississippi having the most, and of the lynchings in the west, they were mostly towards white people for reasons like cattle thieves, and they shared no political ties to the lynchings of black people in the south. I hope that helps to convey the seriousness of lynchings in the south. So with that all being said, let me get into the event that really made Ida B. Wells famous and propelled her into the center of the women's and civil rights movements of the time. Now it's the early 1890s, and three black men own a supermarket. Their names are Tom Moose, Calvin McDowell, and Will Stewart. And Ida knows them. Now, the supermarket they own is starting to do really well, and so they know that this means it was likely going to become a target of the white mobs and vandalizers. And they were right. It was becoming a target. White people were angry that this black-owned supermarket was taking their business away from them. And so, just as the three owners suspected, they came one night to try and vandalize it. But the three men were prepared. Like I said, they had expected something like this to happen, so on the night the vandalizers showed up, they were guarding the store. They shot at the vandalizers in an attempt to protect their business, but instead, they were soon arrested and locked up at the local police station, and let it be noted that the vandals were left completely to their own devices. But the three men never got a chance to defend themselves or tell their side of the story because that same night, they were broken out of prison by a lynch mob and murdered. This was such a large event in the community that the black residents of Memphis began to flee Tennessee in fear for their lives. 
Ida, of course, couldn't let this stand. She couldn't just let her friends die in vain with no justice, and knowing the police weren't going to do anything, she took matters into her own hands. She started by using her paper to denounce the lynchings of the three men, an event which became known as the People's Grocery Lynchings. But she wanted to do more than write an article. She knew this issue was so much bigger than that, so she took it upon herself to research and investigate a myriad of lynchings from the past few years. So, armed with a pistol, she set off alone, traveling through the American South, investigating over 700 lynchings from the past decade. She scanned photographs of victims hanging from trees as mobs looked on, examined local newspaper accounts, interviewed and took statements from eyewitnesses and the family members of the lynchings, and on occasion she even worked with PIs and visited the sites of the lynchings. Keep in mind, she was doing this all during the era of Jim Crow and segregation, at a time when being a black woman was reason enough to receive hostility from white southerners, let alone being a black woman investigating lynching. But as it has been well established at this point, Ida B. Wells was a true force of nature. And in understanding why she would put herself in these incredibly dangerous situations, I look to a quote of hers. One had better die fighting injustice than die like a dog or a rat in a trap. Most of her investigative work and the writing she produced as a result was aiming to dismantle the mainstream media's narrative that suggested lynching victims were criminals, often the rapists of white women. She proved that in at least two-thirds of the lynchings, rape was never even alleged or was only alleged after a consensual interracial relationship was exposed. In 1892, she published her first report on her findings, titled Southern Horrors, Lynch Law, and All Its Phases, Exposing the Reality of Lynching in the South. In her report, she blows open the common belief held by most white people at the time that lynchings were a response to criminal acts by black people. In her report, Wells proves that these murders were actually deliberate, brutal acts to punish and control the southern black population. But Wells's writing was really starting to anger the southern white mobs now. And soon after the publishing of her report, Ida's printing press back home in Memphis was burned down by a white mob. Thankfully, though, Ida was away when it happened, so she was physically unharmed. However, the mob left a note, saying that they would kill her if she ever returned to Memphis. So she never did. Instead, she headed north to continue her activism in New York. In New York, Ida B. Wells found a platform and truly was able to kick off her activism, becoming instrumental in the fight for women's rights and civil rights. The first thing she did when she arrived in the city that never sleeps was republish her findings on Southern lynchings as a pamphlet where it found a new platform and was available to a new consumer base with different opinions on racism. It was the influence of this pamphlet and Wells' hard work that kicked off one of the first recorded anti-lynching campaigns, largely led by Ida herself. Before the publishing of Ida's findings, lynching was not on the forefront of anybody's civil rights movement, and although... Ida would fight her whole life for people to take it as seriously as she did. The release of Southern Horrors was just the beginning, and it was all because of Ida B. Wells. In 1893, she moved to Chicago, where she took her findings in Southern Horrors and wrote a more in-depth and personal report of the lynchings in America. This time she called it the Red Record, and it continued to push for change and open a dialogue about the realities of the violence black people faced in the South. 
1993 was also the year when she began to receive global attention and left America to lecture abroad, primarily in Europe. She spoke mostly to reform-minded white people, hoping to build support for her anti-lynching campaign. She believed that if she could get the Europeans across the pond passionate about her issues, then the U.S. government would be more likely to respond. She also spent that year speaking out against the ban on black exhibitors at the 1892 Columbian Exposition. She penned and circulated pamphlets on the matter and truly led the discussion around the issue. In 1895, Wells married Ferdinand Barnett, famed black lawyer and newspaper editor, and Ida changed her name to Ida B. Wells Barnett, opting to take her husband's name whilst keeping her own, a decision which was uncommon at the time and something she actually faced criticism for. The pair would go on to have four children together, but this never kept her from her work. It just meant she spent the rest of her life expertly balancing activism with motherhood. Ida frequently challenged her opposers head-on, like when she confronted the YMCA on their segregationist policies, or leading a delegation to the White House protesting discriminatory workplace practices, and publicly air her anti-lynching campaign. She also famously ignored the requests of the white woman suffrage leaders during a march in Washington, D.C. The organizers had attempted to place her and the other marching black women in the back, but she wasn't going to take it and marched up front alongside the rest of the white women. Ida was a key player in many campaigns, obviously anti-lynching, like I've touched upon already, but just as much so in the women's suffrage movement. She was deeply committed and very influential, but constantly clashed with the white leaders because her priorities didn't often align with theirs. In fact, this happened a lot to Ida. Many of her fellow activists saw her as radical or thought that her priorities lay in the wrong places, for example, she was always very focused on the atrocities taking place in the South, whereas many of the movement's leaders saw this as anti-productive, whereas in reality, she was just ahead of her time. Throughout her career, she was also successful in forming many activist groups and civil rights organizations, the first of which she formed in 1996 called the National Association of Colored Women. And in 1909, she attended the meeting of the Niagara Movement, which, you might know, led to the formation of the NAACP, or the National Association for the Advancements of Colored People, which you might recognize since it's still around today and is currently one of the most powerful civil rights organizations. Ida is now being considered a founding member of the NAACP. However, early in its formation, she actually chose to cut ties with the organization, citing that it lacked action-based initiatives. Finally, in 1913, she founded what may have been the first black women's suffrage group called Chicago's Alpha Suffrage Club. Some other of Ida B. Wells' notable accomplishments include creating the first African-American kindergarten in her community, serving as a probation officer on the Chicago Municipal Court, and working with Susan B. Anthony on women's suffrage. Truly, Ida B. Wells lived an incredible and underappreciated life. This is a woman with accomplishments equal to Susan B. Anthony, and yet I didn't know her name until I went looking. A hundred years after Ida B. Wells was in her prime, people are finally starting to show her the respect she deserves. Nicole Hannah-Jones, an investigative journalist covering civil rights, said about Wells, She was a trailblazer in every way, as a feminist, as a suffragist, as an investigative reporter, as a civil rights leader. She was just an all-around badass. But Nicole Hannah-Jones also goes on to say, 
I think her being a woman, and a black woman, were things that pretty much guaranteed her obscurity. Ida B. Wells remains a little-known figure in America and abroad, but to those willing to look, she is a timeless, inspirational figure whose words and beliefs ring just as true over a hundred years later. She was a teacher, a journalist, a civil rights activist, and a suffragist. And it was once said about her that she has plenty of nerve. She's as smart as a steel trap, and she has no sympathy with humbug. She died in 1931 from a freak kidney failure. At the time of her death, she was in the middle of writing her autobiography. And in it, she writes about the generation of children who will not know about the realities of lynching firsthand and begs for it never to be forgotten. Today, all there is to commemorate the people's grocery murders is a simple marker on the street. I would like to thank the incredible YouTube channel that is TED-Ed. They made one short video on Ida B. Wells and I was just like, damn, I gotta tell this woman's story. Cause she's just so truly incredible. And I know I say every episode that you should do more research cause it's interesting, but this time I seriously mean it. I chose to focus on Ida's train and incident and the investigation into the people's grocery lynchings because if I covered her whole life in detail, this would be a very long podcast. But genuinely, this woman never ceases to amaze me, and she will continue to blow you away. Personally, I think you should read an article by The Guardian, which goes into her legacy and looking back on her accomplishments a hundred years later. I found it super valuable. But as usual, all my sources will be linked down below, including the TED-Ed video, so check it out if you're interested. Okay, if you made it to this point in the podcast, thank you so, so, so much for listening. It genuinely means so much. Um, this was, like, not a good week for me, so this was just, like, a harder podcast to get done. But I finished it. Yay. So I hope you enjoyed it, and hopefully I will see you next week.